Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others. I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads. Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is episode 25, Driving Under Pressure, Trying to Qualify for the Daytona 500. But first things first, an important thing was yesterday, Valentine's Day. Really want to know exactly how you guys did out there. The skinny, the straight skinny here. Did you guys uh, vie for the win on the lead <laughs> lap, or did you go a couple laps down? <laughs> well, let me uh, let me give you um, my piece of advice. Oh, you're giving advice on this. Yes. Well, again, you've got to understand, I have been in Daytona for the major portion of my career on Valentine's Day. So you had to you know, provide some Valentine's Day gift or flowers or something for a long period of time. And there's times it doesn't really meet expectation, let's just say. And I don't want to go into any stories because Alicia will, you know, jump in on something. So anyways, <laughs> I just want to give my expert opinion. And that would be resort to groveling and major sucking up. That's all I'm going to say. If you were. If uh, you were in a couple laps down. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you're on the lead lap, then congratulations. Lead lap, you congratulations. Did well. You did good. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> all right. Well. On to the important stuff. Uh, the important stuff. Well, on to other maybe stuff. on to other stuff. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Daytona 500. Obviously, it is this week. And, you know, we are a day away from the uh, twin qualifying races, the 150s, which obviously is probably the most anxiety-ridden time for a race car driver and car owner and or crew chief and the entire team, or the sponsors. It obviously has been, in my experience, different then and now. And drastically I've, different. Yes, As drastically. far as the pressure to make the race. And I've been on both ends of the spectrum, where you had fast race cars and very productive, and then where you had less than stellar cars, and the anxiety level was very high. And... I'm going to go into some things, you know, specifically uh, about the Daytona 500 and races and give you a perspective of really how much pressure really was on you and continues to be on you, depending on your circumstances. Well, much more so before the charter system. There's not near the pressure now that there was then. That is correct. But it's all, and again, that is for the charter members, you know, as you know, the charters are basically... Uh, a franchising where you are guaranteed a starting spot in the Daytona 500, and there's 36 of those. So the dynamic certainly has changed over the years. I mean, you still have the open cars that have to get in the race on their own merit. And this year, there are a number of entries uh, over and above the four that would make the field. So they're vying for that spot. So that means there will be people going home. 
And there's more entries this year than there has been in years past, for certain. Typically, only two or three cars in the Daytona 500 go home. And this year, there's going to be more than that. Well, theoretically, mm-hmm. right now, there's, I think, the, the entry list that people are speculating on is 42. But I'm hearing of another couple of cars that are trying to put efforts to go to be there. So there could be possibly 44 entries. That means four would go home. So that means in each twin 125 qualifying race, two people would be going home. And the way that the open cars have to make the event is basically off of speed, your qualifying speed. So when you qualify on on third um, on and on the qualifying day, you basically will have your qualifying speed. And if you are the first or second fastest overall speed of the all the open cars, you would be guaranteed a spot in the Daytona 500, irregardless of anything that happens. The rest of the guys are racing, and you are only racing the open cars in the 150. So you're racing, basically you're racing for two spots, right? So two guys are going to go home. So you have got to make, you know, the race. So let's talk about how it used to be. Like, for example, your 1990 Daytona 500 that you won, there was 61 cars that entered that race. Is that right? That's correct. That's insane amount of entries. And that was typical for that time frame era. Right. So the pressure of arriving and making that race was insanely more so. And when did the, I know you had the provisionals that were already in place at that time, but it used to be that there obviously was no charter system. So when, correct me if I'm wrong, 61 cars showed up minus the three provisional spots, they were all vying for a spot in the Daytona 500 based on their speed, correct? Based on your merit. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you you basically were all, you know, in in peril. You basically were all, you know, capable of missing the Daytona 500. So mm-hmm. there was immense pressure on everyone involved. And with 61 cars, again, you have to understand the whole concept and the way it was built around was really different and it vacillated. There was changes all the times. They added, you know, champions provisionals. They added the provisionals and they changed the provisionals. And then, of course, two, you know, made it on speed or guaranteed. So the pole sitter and the outside pole winner back then were guaranteed in the race no matter what. So they could wreck, they could fall to the back and be out of the top uh, 15 and still be on the pole and the outside pole and start the Daytona 500 there. But then, back then, you had to really, if let's just say the pole sitter and the outside pole sitter finished the race, then you had to qualify in the top 14 to be guaranteed a spot because it went back to speed, your qualifying speeds, and then to provisionals. So you were basically racing for 30 spots in the twin 125s back then, now the 150s. So it's a 125-mile race, and you had to be 14th or better to be guaranteed no matter what happened. You had to be 14th or better. Okay, so 14th or better, minus the three provisionals. The rest of those 61 cars, do the math here, 14 plus 3. 18. 18. So 18 cars are fighting to get those last spots. Yeah. But you had to, and that was all based on really 
on your qualifying speeds, your provisionals, and you had to finish in the top 14. So those three elements made up the starting lineup. So you as a race car driver in practice and then go qualify, you know where your speed is at and you kind of figure you have a shot to be in the race on speed if it was decent. If not, then you have to resort to the fact and resign yourself to the fact I have to be in the top 14. Well, and it's just mind boggling to think that, um, you know, a maybe Dale Earnhardt Sr. at the time or a, um, you know, a top five team or driver could have some type of mishap in the qualifying races. Like maybe their, um, you know, their battery goes dead. Or they get wrecked. They get wrecked. They something crazy fluky happens, right? They get a, a tire cut down, right? And all of a sudden, they're not in the race. They're not in the Daytona 500. I mean, that would be a huge amount of of pressure, to say the least, not only on that organization but also the sponsor that's on that car. So it is vastly different um, from what that would be today. Yes, because back then, like you said, if you had a problem in qualifying, maybe you. You know, you missed a gear and you hurt the motor, uh, leaving pit road, or you had a tire cut down or something happened, right? And battery failure, whatever the case may be, and you didn't get a good qualifying speed or not one at all, then you were resigned to the fact that you had to make the top 14 in the qualifying race. So it didn't matter who you were, pressure was on. Well, and those qualifying races were crazy back then. You think they're crazy now for just two guys, you know, trying to make the spot. Imagine 18 guys trying to make spots in those races. I mean, it must have been just gouging, dog-eat-dog type of spectator sport. Well, the thing I think you got to understand when it comes to drafting, the more cars you have, the more energy there is. You're, you're running a projectile through the air, creating a wake effect behind it. So the more cars you have running there, the more the air is disturbed and the draft is more apparent. So if you had like nowadays, you only have, you know, 21, 22 cars running the race. Well, back then you had 30 cars Mm -hmm. running the race. So 10 cars in a big big pack makes a big difference as far as the energy that is being created out there. So yes, it does make the draft, you know, more apparent. So like when, you know, and you think about, again, we talked about how many cars are showing up. I remember the inaugural Brickyard you know, at Indianapolis, I think there's over 80 some cars that showed up there. You know, some, you know, couldn't make tech and some, you know, withdrew and whatever the case may be. But still, you had an influx of 70 some odd cars there when it's all said and done trying to qualify for that race. So you had to qualify on your merit. And that's what I think the best of the best were productive. You know, the team, the driver, crew chief, all of those things, all those variables had to come together and create a quality product on any given Sunday. And that, in my opinion, is not the case in this day and age, as far as making the race, you know, still the cream rises to the top, the bigger teams, the most money and the talent level and the people, right? Any good, you know, you're only as good as the people you have working for you. So those will rise to the top and they're the most productive over the course of the year. And, you know, the big change for this year obviously is absolutely no practice for qualifying for the Daytona 500. So you go out cold turkey and make your qualifying lap. So your speed is based on how you get off pit road, how the motor accepts throttle, how you create speed running the the line around the racetrack, you know, the minimum way around the racetrack, running the low line and keeping the amount of feet that you have, you know, uh, short. And 
getting your speed based on that. But some of these guys, you know, they haven't um, been in a car in 10 years, like Travis Pastrana. Yeah. And you got Connor Daly, who hasn't really been at Daytona 500. So he's going for the first time when, you know, so there's a lot of things. It's be interesting. It, it really is. Sure. So it adds, a, it adds an element of, uh, you know, of intrigue. Yeah, it certainly does. But it, it definitely just disparity between the number of entries and the fact that the charter system has now pretty much negated the the competition of making the race is certainly, you know, worth discussing. But um, let's um, digress just a little bit because um, you had once told me a story about um, the uh, Bahari with the uh, Sarah Lee car and how you had... Um, had all this hype surrounding it with the sponsor. And I, I recall the, a story that, I mean, it was just crazy the amount of hype and marketing and events that were surrounding the Daytona 500. And you had a bad car and, you know, barely made it in. I mean, talk about that. The pressure of the expectation is there that you're making the race. I mean, everyone just thinks you're out, you're going to be in. But I mean, it was weighing heavy on you that, wow, we might go home. The 1998 year with Bahari, we had gum out on the car and ran really productively, had a sh shot to win the Daytona 500 again. I had a pole at Charlotte, really good year. Then the next year, you now Pennzoil was gone and we had a new sponsor, Sarah Lee, and this was the meat groups division. So you had Jimmy Dean, you had Brian Foods, you had State Fair Corn Dogs, and I think Rudy's Farm, Cole Cuts. So we had this collective effort and really a unique strategy marketing-wise, right? But all these four brands and entities of Sara Lee. And back then, a lot of the sponsors, uh, they would do their national sales meetings around the Daytona 500. So it was like their major marketing platform. So they would have speaking engagements. They would have a dinner function. They would bring all these people to the races. This was a major deal, a suite, you name it, right? So I remember in 1999, you know, Chuck Ryder who, um, and Lawrence Harry, they were the owners of Bahari. And we had gone down for preseason testing, and I, we were not good. And went back for the 500. We were, we were horrible. Car would not run. Don't know. The engine just didn't seem to run, or the body was, you know, was had a lot of drag. It just was not a good car. And we were suffering. And really qualifying went the same way. We were we were terrible in qualifying. So I knew that we had to make it in the 125. And again, as we alluded to earlier, you had to finish 14th or better. And our car was terrible. So I've always felt like I was a really good drafter. I understood the air. I could, you know, get a sense of, I understood motors and engines and pitches of the motors. So I really knew when the car got a surge, you know, I got a good draw on the booster and you could sense the car get up on its haunches and you could get a run and then you try to manifest that into a move that would, you know, pick up positions. So, but prior to this, we, you know, you, you know, you have to make the, you know, the 125 and Looming in the background is the fact that Sarah Lee is doing a national sales meeting in St. Augustine at the World Golf Center, and we were going to be flying in there. And that's leading up to the race. That's leading up to the race. Yeah, so, so you're not in yet. Yeah, I'm not in the race yet. That's on, <laughs> that's on Saturday night before the Daytona 500. So I have to make the race to be able to have all these people that are coming in from Sarah Lee and this function where I'm speaking at and Chuck Ryder speaking at telling them, you know, about the race coming up, right? So, I mean, you, the pressure is building. And, you know, you have to go out there and get it done. Well, you're coming in on a helicopter. And didn't 
Yeah. Explain the, uh, the yeah, we are the champions. We made, we made the race. Let's put it that way. You know, I don't get caught before the horse here. So bottom line is we get in the 120, we get in the 125 and I, you know, I draft my tail off and I finished 10th. I finished 10th in the, uh, in the 125. So I am totally relieved. And I remember before that, I mean, we had an engine in the floor of the transporter and making changes, changing motors, doing stuff. And Chuck Ryder is, I mean, he, he is really anxiety ridden. I mean, and she had to know Chuck then, right? He had this cigar and he's chewing on this cigar. And I mean, he <laughs> is just, you know, I mean, he's shaking, right? Cause he knows what, he knows what's about to happen. And, or not about to or happen. Or not. Yeah. And so we make the race. Of course, after that, I mean, he's like a bandy rooster, you know, chest is out, you know, big cigar again, you know, and everything's great. You know, we're going to go win the Daytona 500. And I'm looking at him like this crap car we got right here. I don't think it's going to win the Daytona 500. Right. But you never know the draft. You got to, you know, put yourself in a position to win. Like I, I already had won the Daytona 500 and I knew that could happen. Just had to go. And I drafted really well. And in the draft, the car was, was pretty, pretty proficient, but that means it's a brick and it, you know, it works good behind cars, but it can't lead. So I know what I have to do for the 500. But before that, we have a speaking engagement Saturday night before the race. So here we are. We all load up in our suits and we fly into getting this ho- in this helicopter and we're flying into St. Augustine. And like you alluded to, the big spotlights are on the uh, helicopters. We're flying in, you know, and we're lowering down and you hear this music blaring. I mean, Blaring. We are the champions. Yes, you got it right. And I'm thinking to myself, self, this is not good. <laughs> sure enough. The expectation is way higher than what the car is capable of. Oh, yeah. Of course, you know, that's that's all because of Chuck Ryder. So sure enough, we get in there and everything is good. Everybody's excited. I mean, this is the national sales meeting. And, you know, we get there, we're in our suits, we look great, you know, we're talking great, we have a great dinner function and the whole bit. Then we go to this elevated auditorium there, and Chuck Ryder gets up there, and, you know, Jerry Laner first was up there, you know, introducing the race team and talking about their relationship and, you know, all the all the things we're going to do with the platform we had marketing-wise with the four brands, just something that was very innovative at that time in the sport. And um, then it was Chuck Ryder's turn. Chuck gets up there and, you know, proceeds to, he's very flamboyant, very likes to, likes to hear himself talk. Here we go. He talks the whole thing. And then he pretty much says, and Derek Cope's going to go win the Daytona 500 again. Thinking to myself, self, again, I have to go up there and explain how, what kind of car we have and the possibility that we won't win the Daytona 500. You barely qualified is exactly. what you want to tell everyone is this piece of crap car barely made it in people. Yeah. That that was the victory. The champion that you got here is the fact that you're actually in the race. That is correct. And so I get up there to speak and, and try to downplay, you know, Chuck's prediction of winning the Daytona 500 again, try to give them more realistic expectations, you know, and explain the fact that, you know, we obviously, the car is not as good as I really hoped it would be. It's good behind cars, but it's not so good out front. So that means my job becomes more difficult and my strategy has to change. So I go into the drafting scenario, what is before me and what do I have to do? Well, 
you know, things went really well and then, you know, it was well perceived and the whole bit, but you know, the race doesn't go as well as we hoped to. And I think I finished 18th and I think I was a lap down. So, you know, you could just tell you, we must, have, I don't remember if we had a bad pit stop or, you know, something happened with a caution or whatever, but we were not really a factor to win the race, but I still a top 20 finish, good effort off to the, you know, the points that we needed to start the year on and, and we got running. So that was a story that goes to show you that, you know, it uh, it can get very difficult well, both and the be pressure, difficult to make the race. Right. Both the pressure and the expectation back then were way more than than what it is now. I mean, we've definitely been in the open car situation and been, uh, you know, two or three cars that we're vying for. But but that type of pressure is, is probably uh, something that I had not experienced at. Uh, the sponsor of, of that level. So it was a funny story. I've always remembered you talking about the spotlights and the the music and flying in going, holy crap, what is this? Because you've always been kind of a guy that likes to fly under the radar, keep the expectation low, and then overdo. But this was like coming into, you know, well, what are you guys thinking? This yeah, is Jacksonville like- <laughs> flight flight plan. There, are people like we we got a we got a we got a group up here flying into St. Augustine and all this uh, hurrah going on. I was like, <laughs> yeah, oh boy, you know, not like I said, like to be under the radar, but uh, it was, you know, what it was an exciting moment, and no one had really ever done anything like that that I had been involved with, you know, that magnitude. This was a first class, other than doing a national sales meeting, speaking for Eminem Mars. But this was dynamic. You know, it was a lot of effort, money, and put into this thing. And it was, uh, yeah, it was an exciting, you know, exciting time. But I want to talk a little bit about the strategy during the race, because this is something that listeners and, you know, whenever you get interviewed, questions always come up and something I'm intrigued with as well. So what goes through your mind, through a driver's mind, your internal conversation when you have a good car? And you're out there strategizing. And I'm talking actually in the Daytona 500, not the qualifying, because of course that's totally different. Um, And then what goes through your mind when you don't have a good piece? Kind of, you know, um, illustrate to us what what you're looking for and what you're not looking for. I've always heard the languaging that comes across on the radio, you know, dumping, hanging out to dry, leave this person, love this person. He doesn't got a big enough stick, leave him, um, go catch this pack. This pack is good. You know, all of this verbalization that goes on, um, kind of explain that in more detail. I think I have to go back to the 125 first to kind of preface that. And I'll tell a little story um, that, I've never, you know, you talk about having to have a partner or you really, and you have to understand your car. So all of that, you don't know until the 125, but after the 125, you have a clear complexion of what you can and cannot do. And I remember in this one instance, Buddy Baker, who won the Daytona 500 in 1980, you know, won a lot of races, you know, 19 races or so in the Cup Series and, you know, a a dynamic race car driver and personality. I remember, I don't remember what year it was, but, you know, to make a long story short, we were both struggling in qualifying leading up to the 125s and we were having this conversation and about, you know, in practice, for practice, like he and I got together hooked up in in the practice session and drove to the front and really collectively our two cars were good together sometimes depending on the body style cars are compatible and some are not compatible depending on the bumpers and and you know how the car comes air comes off a car two cars find synergy together and become proficient well we had it for some reason and buddy and i were talking and he said you know i know he says look he goes you know 
the likelihood of us, either one of us making the, the Daytona 500 are poor if we don't stick together. He says, and I know, he says, I've never been able to make a deal with anybody and have everybody stick to it. And somebody always hangs somebody out to dry. Of course. Right? The old adage, the word, <laughs> you're talking about terminology, hang somebody out to dry. That means when you're supposed to be following a plan and do something, you know, when he pulls out and goes, you either don't go or you go out with him and then you get in the first hole you find. So you discard them. So Buddy and I made a pact and we said, we are going to stick together in the 125, come hiding her hair. Bottom line is all the way to the end. And, you know, let's see if we can stick to it. Right. I mean, you know, and then somebody, I said, ultimately, I said, we have to be able to make our own choices late in the, in the race. Right. So I said, let's say either five to go, three to go, whatever you think. Right. Let's, let's pick the deal and say, at that point, you're on your own and nobody's going to be mad at each other. If we're, as long as we're doing whatever we can do to that point in time. And we did it. The one thing I can say is that we both, where we held true to our, you know, our decision and a man of our word, we stayed together. We drafted our way to the, up towards the front. We got through all that. We were in the top 14, both of us. And then I don't remember what really happened, but we both tried to make some moves with one to go or two to go. And I don't remember who finished where, but I know that after that 125 race, buddy, buddy's a big guy and I'm a little guy, <laughs> right? And he towers over you. He come over and put the biggest bear hug on me and said, you know what? He said, I've never had anybody do what they said they were going to do. And you did it. He says, man, we both made the race. He said, I just want to thank you for, you know, for doing it. I said, I want to thank you too. I said, you know, what's a good the chance that we both would have made this race and we did it. So I said, we're in the 500 and you know what, let's, uh, let's both go have a good race. So that right there tells you when you leave that 125, you know what you're capable of in your own mind. You may find a little bit here and there, but when you show up at Daytona, you basically got what you have. That's mm -hmm. it. You're not going to fix the car, right? So to answer your question that you just alluded to a minute ago about the terminology and what you're looking for in a, a 500, after the 125, you go through practice, you might find some other guys you run good with or whatever, but you kind of know who's going to use you, who's going to support you, and who's not. So I always really wanted to be on my own. I really, you know, the multi-car teams, you know, you've got the OEMs, right? You got Chevrolet, Ford, you had Pontiac, you had Oldsmobile. And in this day and age, you can see that people actually do try to work more together, right? They only want to practice with Chevrolets only. They don't want, and then the Fords want to just practice with Fords and they want their fuel mileage together. They want to run together on the racetrack. And back then the same thing was there, but it was more team-based. So if you had a multi-car team, they tried to help each other or run together. And, but the most difficult part was you never could get really anybody, like you said, like Buddy and I did, to follow through. So, you know, but when you had a really good race car, they were more apt to work with you. Kind of like the Dale Jr., Dale Sr. scenario, right? When, you know, or the Jeff Gordon or the Jimmy Johnson, when your car's fast and people know it, they're going to be supportive to a point. So when you pull out, you really have, and that's Dale Jr. always knew. He said that if he pulled out, somebody's going to go with him and a train's going to go with him. They're going to build another lane and they're going to build momentum and they're going to, you know, build the lane where he goes because of past experience and past verification, right? So when you had a really good car, the tendency is, yeah, I'm going to follow that cat because he's got a good car and he's going to help me get up front and get me in a position to win the race. What if they have a good car, but they're not necessarily a good driver or a driver that has made 
mistakes in the past. Well, when they're behind you, it's okay. When they're in front of you, that becomes a problem. As a driver, though, you know what your car is capable of doing. You know how your car is behind a car, and you know how it is out front when somebody's pushing you. So you have what they call excessive movement in the car. The cars move around a lot. I mean, sometimes like you get in the middle of a corner, it's almost like they have a stake stuck through the hood and the car is just twitching around this, you know, and rotating around this pin in the front of the hood or in the middle of the car. So the back end's really dancing around. When you see people's cars having a lot of excessive movement, you don't feel comfortable because at any moment they could be in a, in a tough spot and then wreck and take you out. So you assess all these things in the 125 and in practice and then in the 500. And you start to realize, because when you get to the 500, that's the first time you got 40 cars together. You only had 30 or 20 in this day and age. And then when you get to the race, now you got double that. Mm -hmm. Now the energy is picked up. So what you had as far as the draft and 20 car pack is now a 40 car pack. Now business picks up. Now the speeds escalate a lot and the air movement escalates a lot. So now you've got a lot of excessive movement in people's cars that they didn't really see before because the speeds are up there and the car is not comfortable in that void area of air. So things change. So you have to be able to adapt, you know, and see it and re and make reactive, you know, changes to what you're doing and who you're comfortable with. And that's what we talk about the old adage, hang somebody out to dry. Somebody, you know, you pull out, they go with you, you find a hole, you get back in the hole and you hang them out to dry and they're stuck on the bottom with no help. And then people fill the void. You go to the outside, you make a move to the outside and you put them three wide, put him in the middle. Then the other guys pull the outside and follow you. And that line moves. And the guy in the middle lane is a sucker hole. And that goes backwards. So it's a yes, chess the game. old sucker hole, which is so um, exciting to watch because it is like pure, like what what's the word? Not physiology, but like the, it, it's mathematical almost when you watch it because someone will say, you know, there's the sucker hole and you can just see them just drop like a rock. But then there's times that the center works and it, it, it there's no rhyme or reason sometimes, but sometimes the, the void area there all of a sudden works and you can run the middle and you can haul the mail and you can make a lot of ground up. And then you look for a gap and you get in the gap and you hang out the rest of the group in the middle. But again, it really is a chess match and you really have to look so far ahead and you're looking for a gap. You're looking for the surge and the senses when you're driving a race car at those speeds you, your senses are all heightened, your vision, your smell, your, your, you know, the way that your butt feels in your butt and your hands. <laughs> and you, you get a sense of this car and you can sense the car almost like the car, like gets up on its haunches and it's like, it rises up and starts to quiver and you can feel the air on the car and you can feel all of a sudden kind of like, I guess I've never done any surfing but when you watch a surfer and you're up on top of the wave and you see the energy and you see how quick it's coming down mm -hmm. and then it kind of peters out at the end when mm -hmm. the wave dissipates right same thing applies with the air when you're running through the air and the car's up on its haunches it's up on the pipe it's up on the you know the it's got a lot of great draw on the booster of the carburetor it's running hard and then all of a sudden and the cowl is pulling and then all of a sudden you peek out a little bit and you feel the drag on the car and the motor goes Ooh. And it drops down and then you sense and you move back in and you search, you move around and you all of a sudden feel the car go Ooh, and pick up. 
So you're searching for the air of what the cow wants and how the car it's, is. It's air voodoo. Air voodoo. Yeah. Well, as they say, <laughs> the old adage, you know, that Earnhardt could see the air. You sense the air on the car. You can, when you, when you talk about, they call side drafting, you're packing air. So when you, when your car, somebody goes to buy you on the outside, when you or you're you're going by someone on the outside and you're trying to slow them down, you see the guys drive down at their door and they pack air. They call it side drafting. Well, basically, you're packing air at like a braking sensation on the car next to you. And the angle of attack dictates how much of a sensation of braking and slowing down of that car you do. So if you're on the bottom and somebody pinches down on you, you have no angle of attack to actually put air against them. So you're vulnerable. So that's why I always like the outside because I could dictate the angle of attack to pack air on the guy and slow him down and then move away. And then the guys behind you have to follow you and they, and they, and they push you back up and whatever you use to slow him down, you've slowed down some too, but you can't stay there very long. And then you move away and hopefully the guy behind you, you block him, you follow him and you take that air that he's going to push you by him. And then you've both gained. So those are the elements that I thought were so exciting and so intriguing that really drew you to restrict your plate racing. And a lot of people didn't like the close quarters and being tucked up and can't see you in front of you. And, you know, they didn't like that element. But the sensation you got of being in the draft and really up going at high speeds is exhilarating. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah, I can I can always see and hear the excitement in your voice no matter how many times you talk about it. It's so cool. But um, let's talk a little bit, too, about the teammates in NASCAR. We talk about this, you know, strategy. You're always talking. You hear NASCAR commentators, and, um, you know, I make no secret of the NASCAR commentators that uh, I think are terrible. Um, But one thing that they say that I think is just so ridiculous is, oh, well, that's his teammate. Well, that teammate's going to help him. And I just want to call BS on that. There is no teammates on that field. And I don't care if you have a four or five car team. I don't care if you're the owner of that team. When it comes down to the last couple laps, there's no teammates. And um, I love Ernest Hemingway's quote, which we hear a lot about, there are only three sports in this world, bullfighting, motor racing, and mountaineering. All the rest are merely games. Because honestly, it is the driver. I mean, now you can say that there is that dynamic aspect of the pit crew, which adds an additional team in motorsports. And I, you know, being part of a team and running a team, certainly there is some teamwork as far as the people are concerned off the track. But when you're on the track, you are the only person and what you're sitting in that is dependent on your results. And there's always that unpredictable element, you know, the um, that movie that we love, The Art of Racing in the Rain, how he always talks about the unpredictable element, right? So you are the driver, you control your destiny, except for that unpredictable element that's there. And, you know, and in bullfighting, that would be the bull. And in mountaineering, that would be the elements. And in motor racing, it's your car and everyone else around you, right? So I love that part of the sport. That's what I think just becomes so exciting is because you never know any given second something can change, especially at a super speedway and, you know, the Daytona 500 especially. So um, the no teammates in NASCAR is something that I feel is definitely worth discussing. So what are you, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, earlier in the, you know, episode, I said something about always wanting to not have to have something that I had to do. Having a teammate puts you in a position where you have to do something for them 
or you're obligated to, whether you're a manufacturer situation or a teammate and you have team orders that you're trying to help and help get those cars up there. You're trying to keep together, keep that group going, pitting together, doing all those things, right? I really didn't like it because, I mean, I guess I was selfish. I wanted to make my own decisions when I made them. And I think that if you go into a race with preconceived notions, you will make ultimately make mistakes because it never, ever works out like you think it's going to. And that's the part I loved about it is that it was so reactive and so spontaneous and things, you've got 40 other mental giants out there, 39 if you're one of them, right? But you got all these mental giants all thinking for themselves. <laughs> and all um, egomaniacs All well. egomaniacs, as they say, right? So <laughs> Immature egomaniacs. Immature, yeah, exactly. So, you know, Nicole uh, said that, right? So anyways, you know, it's true because, you know, it basically... They only care about themselves ultimately. And you know, they all want to win this Daytona 500. It's the biggest prize there. So you will resort to about anything. And I always wanted to be on my, I wanted to make my own decision based on, you know, whatever I lived and died by my sword. That's the way I looked at it. So having a teammate and having to think about them or helping them at some point when you really didn't want to do that, I never really liked it. Nor did I really want to ever condone the fact that I had to do it. And, and that's why I only did it that one time. I really didn't, you know, I would try to, you know, do other things if I thought it would be to my benefit. But ultimately, I didn't want that in my strategy, right? I wanted to take it as it come. And that's, I would, that's why people say, what's your plan? I said, don't got one. You know, the bottom line is I'm going in with no preconceived notions. I'm going in, I'm going to take it as it comes. I'm going to see it as it unfolds and I'll make my decisions, conscious decisions on the fly. So you're saying basically you would not, even if you had a multi-car team and you were a driver among those that working with your teammates, you're saying that's really not, uh, not a thing for, not for you and not for the majority of drivers out there. Not for me. And ultimately, do I think the, do I think the rest of them really want it and do it? I don't think they really want to. They want, I mean, they may do it because they have to. They're making big bucks and that's what the owner says you're going to do and you're going to do it to a point. But then it comes to a point where they say, look, you know, the last five laps or the last three laps or whatever the case may be, you know, you're on your own. You can do what you need to do. So, you know, I guess there's a method to the madness. You know, we got to get to the end so we all have a chance to win the race and doing the date 500 and bring it home to Hendrix or whoever, right? But, as a selfish individual, as a race car driver, wanting to win the Daytona 500 and you haven't won it before, I mean, there's like a little devil on one side <laughs> and a little guy with a you know halo on the other side saying, don't help him. Don't help him to be selfish. Do what you want to do. And the other guy's like, no, no, hey, be a good team player. You know, the best thing to do is, you know, it'll all work out in the end for you, blah, blah, blah. What do you do, right? And I didn't really like that. You know, I want to stay within myself, stay within my own deal and get the most that I could get and I'll take it good or bad. And so, yeah, you know, these guys have a, they have a difficult deal because they have a lot of multi-car teams. You have, you have people that you're helping right all the time. And you got the manufacturers who play a heavy role in the support of the team. There's money, there's engineering, there is wind tunnel, there is money for the CFD modeling. There's like now these days, right? 
everybody has an alliance. So you have an alliance. So you're part of an well, and, alliance and you're having to give information, right? So you're diluting your own opportunity. And it needs to be said that you never had that pressure. You never were part of a multi-car team. You never had a manufacturer support. You never had um, alliances. Even with your top, you know, what you would consider your, you know, top years, you did not have that pressure. So being independent out there was definitely not as selfish as what it sounds like to the listeners because you you did not have to answer to that. So yeah, I mean I I had a little bit of manufacturer support, but not to what the degree that it is now, right? Like and, you get out there and support those four Chevrolets, you know, yeah, come, make yeah, or break it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean the bottom line, you know, they can want in one hand and you know what in another as far as I was concerned. It's like I really I never had to have that problem because I really always was in a mid-pack team. I never really was in the highest echelon team, not ever. So I had to do with what I had and make the best out of that. So I never really had that situation. So I really can't speak to it, you know, to a great degree, but I just feel like that, you know, I really liked making my own decisions. Well, I'm going to put your feet to the fire on this one for the listeners. So do you agree with me? There are no teammates in NASCAR. Do you agree? Yes or no? I agree. <laughs> I All think, right. I think Jeez. when it I think when it comes down to Talk it, one for Alicia. When it comes down to it, there are not. All right. And, and and I think you you come down to the last lap, you know. And do you think that anybody's going to like do anything that they're supposed to do, or the owners want them to do, or the manufacturers want them to do? They are going to. You can tell by that now. They are wrecking people. They don't care what happens, and they will. I mean, they would wreck their own mother. You know, <laughs> yes, and they say that, and they absolutely so say that it's coming. It's just to what degree. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, so. so a lot of excitement to come. So I know we're running out of time on this episode, and this has been so good. This has been such a fun one. But I have to ask this: Where is the worst place to be? Starting position in the Daytona 500, the actual race. Where would you say the worst place to be is? Well, certainly, I think starting in the middle of the pack really is is probably so twentieth to twenty fifth. Yeah, I mean, you better get out of there. Yeah, I think well, that's where your decision comes in, and I think especially more so now, you really are trying to figure out: Do I have a good enough car? Is my car first of all comfortable in the draft? And I think that's where the one twenty five or the one fifty now comes into play. You need to know: Is my car stable? If it's really stable then you can afford to stay in the draft and move towards the front, make those moves, look for problem people or whatever way or cars that don't look, you know, you know, good to you in the draft optically. And you can maybe discard them and, and keep going, or you migrate towards the rear and you find a safe spot back there with a group of fast cars that you won't lose the draft in and you hang out and you log miles. So there's two concepts if you look at it, but there's always somebody in the middle because nobody, you can't have what you, and they normally put in a couple of gaps, right? You'll have three packs sometimes if it, if it goes to that way. Right. So it just depends, but ultimately there's going to be always somebody in peril. And those are cards that are bunched up in the middle of the pack, unless they're just like away from the lead pack and away from the backpack and that middle pack just rides because they know that they're stronger together than they are apart. So they'll mine themselves, they'll stay together, and they'll draft as a group and just log miles until they can pit together and get keep going and then see what the strategy works out. Because that's when things get frayed, is when you have to come to pit road and getting on pit road with large groups uh, or pitting, 
you know, with a manufacturer's group or who think you're, and you missed the queue or you're on the wrong position and you miss pit road or you get hung out, you know, you, there's all kinds of variables. So those are the things that I think are exciting to watch within the race, within the race is looking at, you know, the front who, who migrates from the, to the back and it's not comfortable up there. Who wants to stay up front and just say, I'm going to stay up front, race up front because I have the car to do it out of harm's way. And that's what you did in 1990. You stayed up front the whole <clears throat> time, correct. the whole day. You were up front. But you had a piece that you knew could sustain that. And I could manage it. I could I could feather the throttle. I could back. I could do all the things I needed to do to keep the car, you know, from being compromised and out of harm's way. And get there to the end and wait for a caution and then get your shot. So putting yourself in a position to win the Daytona 500 is what it's all about. How you do that is varied. So in nowadays, you got to see what you have, who's going to help you, how your car is. And then sometimes just the race itself lends it to all of a sudden you can lose the draft very quickly, depending on the rule package, whatever the case may be right now you got this year. Remember no testing whatsoever. No, you know, no, no practice before qualifying and a new nose and tail change for most all the, uh, the cars. So now you're going to the Daytona 500, not knowing how the car is going to draft physically because of a new nose. So do you have more downforce? Do you have less downforce? Do you have more drag? Do you have less drag? Is your car compatible with the bumper and everything for pushing and, and drafting? Those are things that you'll have to find out right prior to the race. So a lot of variables again, right? So um, they have CFD modeling, they have wind tunnels, they have all those things. That's how they have to do all their testing now. So um, again, the, and there's nothing like being in a 40 car draft. You can simulate all you want, but until you get in the fray with that air, actual air being disturbed with 40 cars, you don't really know. So yep. that's where I, with that, I uh, just want to let everybody know that, uh, our website is up and you can access it by going to derekcope.club or racetheory.club. And on the website, uh, it really is something that I think, I hope you'll be you know pleased about and excited about the, uh, the things that are on there. It, it is beautiful. Yeah, I mean, so it, it talks about, you know, what um, opportunities that you can have access to us. You know, I do some, I do public speaking, opportunities for that, driver coaching. Uh, I can do, you know, data analysis, come to the racetrack with people. So there's a, those opportunities are on the website as well as the Cope Club. And that's something I want to talk about a little bit about is that, you know, it's a, you know, as a VIP in the Cope Club, which I hope that maybe you'll take a look at and try to sign up for, right? But you'll receive, uh, you know, access to like the first chapter of Changing Gears. Now, this is my ebook, and the first it, chapter. And it releases today. It releases today, correct. So access to that. And you, the, you know, basically can order it, uh, and it can come in as part of the Cope Club as well, which is, and in that, uh, you basically have an autographed uh, Derek Cope collector's card. We get 25% discount on any merchandise and the merchandise will kind of continue as we go through the year, adding new things. And, uh, there's monthly access to, you know, opportunities, you know, to me. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things. Just take a look at the website. See what is there and see how it resonates with you. But I think it's a great opportunity. And we got some exciting things and concepts that we will 
bring to you as we go through the year more interactive things where hopefully maybe opportunities come to the racetrack and do maybe some you know ride-along deals or things like that we're looking at a lot of options right but something that's maybe up close and personal and things we all that not everybody has an opportunity to do so just wanted to let you know that's where we're at and uh i want you to take a look at that website and uh, uh hopefully you enjoy it yep and when you go to the website derekcope.club or racetheory.club uh, up at the top, you'll see that there is a link to join the Cope Club, and that's where you would do that. It's a monthly subscription. I believe it's only $9.95. It's under $10, and you get the first uh, chapter of that ebook every time. It, uh, well, you'll get the first one, and then every time a new one comes out, you will get that for free as being part of the club, along with everything else Derek's talking about. And you will get um, entered into a free drawing each month to get something from the vault, which could be anything from Derek's got the vault sitting there beside him. Um, Die cast, you know, collector cards like baseball cards. There's all kinds of things and trinkets and stuff that we'll pull out of the vault, and you'll have an opportunity to. Uh, to go after yeah so i hope everyone signs up for the to be in the cope club and as always we always appreciate the support and the feedback and we've really enjoyed being with you today absolutely i enjoy the daytona 500 i know i will thank you so much for listening did this episode give you some value if so please follow us on facebook at Derek cope and instagram at Derek cope double zero and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.